السلام عليكم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم If I um, can take you back just for a second to um, the verse number five. وَمَنْ أَضَلُّ مِمَّنْ يَدْعُو مِنْ دُونِ اللَّهِ مَنْ لَا يَسْتَجِيبُ Who can be more astray than those who call upon other than God who do not respond to them? Um, I just want to, to know because I, I forgot, that in many tafsir, like for instance the Tabari, um, or the Qurtubi as well, they know that those, when, when Allah speaks about those who call upon other than Allah, it's interesting that they, that they know it, al-muluk wal-umara, like for instance those who direct all their hopes uh, at, at rulers, uh, people in power. And that, that becomes their leadership because that's interesting in light of the influence of uh, the Madkhaliya and the Jamiya, those people who say that the essence of Islam is to obey whoever is in power and not to ever oppose them. Um, also, Tabarsi, uh, like other Mufassirun, quite a few of them, uh, note uh, about the same ayah, number five, like those who appoint them their own hawa, their own whims, and their own desires as their, as their effectively as their gods. Okay. And then write وَإِذْ لَمْ يَهْتَدُوا بِهِ فَسَيَقُولُونَ هَذَا إِفْكٌ قَدِيمٌ This is verse 11. That among the responses that people had to the Prophet Muhammad among the responses that people have in general is to say oh we've heard all of this before this is an old lie an old story we've heard all of this before so the interesting thing is while people defer to the way they, they were raised the way they brought up um, but simply because the truth has been told for ages, simply because, you know, you are raised with, with uh, uh, you might have been raised with the, the, the refrain of iman and faith. Uh, just because you've heard it all before, it doesn't mean that it's not the truth. That doesn't affect it. Um, so, and it's interesting that, you know, in many surahs, we know, from many surahs, we know that among the things that, that um, 
among the responses that the Prophet ﷺ was get would get is uh, this is all old news. We we've heard all of this before, and in that context, they're referring to, of course, like the, they've heard the the uh, um, the they've heard narratives about earlier prophets like Ibrahim and Musa and so on. Uh, but the Qurayshis had had rejected these narratives, and so Muhammad was coming, reminding them of something that has been in circulation before. Okay, ومن ومن قبله كتاب موسى إماما ورحمة وهذا كتاب مصدق لسانا عربيا لينذر الذين ظلموا وبشرى للمحسنين. إن الذين قالوا ربنا ربنا الله ثم استقاموا فلا خوف عليهم ولهم يحزنون. So then we we get to twelve and thirteen, where the surah takes us back and says, in fact, there is nothing new. This is the message that. Moses came with, and of course from elsewhere in the Quran we know repeatedly that this is the same message that other prophets came with. But that this is the core message that Allah has communicated to human beings time and time again. It doesn't change. And this is Lisan al Arabiya. This is in Arabic. Now, of course, we know from other surahs, inshallah, that we deal with that Allah responds to these people and say, you know, if Allah would have revealed the Quran in some other language other than Arabic, in Persian, for instance, or in Hebrew, or in Aramaic, you would have said, why that language? Whatever language Allah communicates Allah uses to communicate with human beings, the easiest cop-out is to say, well, why that language? Well, every time that Allah has communicated with human beings uh, in a language, the people that belong to a different linguistic group griped and complained about that. Then this remarkable verse 13, which I, as I told you, the dhikr in the those who in fact, now after laying the foundation, taking you to, to the essence of the message, that those who persevere on the path, the foundation of Iman, they have no reason to fear. Then, a most remarkable transition to talking about parents and family. Allah 
أولئك الذين نتقبل عنهم أحسن ما عملوا ونتجاوز عن سيئاتهم في أصحاب الجنة وعد الصدق الذي كانوا يوعدون Translation And we have enjoined human beings to be virtuous unto their parents. The mother carried them, their mother carried them in travail and bore him in travail and his gestation and weaning in 30 months such that when they reach maturity and reach 40 years, they say, may Lord inspire me to give thanks for thy blessing which though has blessed me and has blessed my parents and that I might I may work and that I may work righteousness such that it pleases you my lord and make righteous for me my progeny truly I turn in in repentance unto thee and truly I am among those who submit they are those from whom we accept the best of what they have done and over whose evil deeds we pass they will be among the inhabitants of the garden, the true promise that they were promised. Okay. So, a couple of elements here. One, it's talking about your obligation towards your parents. وَوَصَيْنَا الْإِنسَانَ بِوَالِدَيْهِ إِحْسَانًا Ihsan is goodness and beauty. The obligation that you owe your parents is an obligation of beauty, is an obligation to treat them beautifully. From a mention to the, of the parents to a focus on the role of the mother who bears the child, who weans the child, and then it talks about, about those who reach 40 years of our age and are fully cognizant of what they owe God and they pass on the legacy of righteousness to their progeny. They pray to God, make our progeny blessed. Okay. So, note here one is that it is calling, reminding you of your obligation towards your parents. Two, it is talking about a dynamic anchored in the family. A child who's raised well by parents, and that child then wants to pass the legacy of that of that. Uh, the wants to pass that beautiful legacy onto their progeny. And then why the mention of 40 years of age? First, I'll deal with the 40 years of age because it's perhaps the easiest of them. There are traditions that say that all the prophets except Jesus, with the exception of Jesus, all the prophets would receive their prophecy in their middle age. 
that they would not start becoming prophets until they, or they would not receive revelation until they've matured and reached that age. Many scholars note that, well, it's this verse is not talking, the Prophet ﷺ himself received revelation when he, was, when he was around 40 years old. But many scholars note that it is not just talking about what happens with prophets, but it is alerting you human beings that reaching the Middle Age is a critical point if, if you will, a signpost in your life. If you reach your middle age and you're still confused and lost, then that's then that's a, a sign of something really wrong. It doesn't mean that you can postpone your piety till middle age, but it's as if Allah is telling you you can go back and forth, but be cognizant of the point in which you reach the Middle Age. The best of you are those, by the time they have reached their Middle Age, they are anchored in this relationship with Allah. Okay. So what is the relationship that the Qur'an is inviting you to be anchored in? And why, right after it reminds us, after it, it talks about the role of the Prophet, and it talks about those who are anchored in the desire to be among those, who, the desire to 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 establish istiqamah and why after talking about well they have no reason to fear and so on and why right after mentioning the narrative with Moses that this is an affirmation does it segue suddenly into talking about parenthood there is a narrative that this ayah was talking about or was revealed on the occasion of Abu Bakr and his parents. But this narrative is not strong. You can't rely on that narrative and you can't rely on that as an occasion for revelation. And as most scholars note, that it is of general application and it's not one that is actually addressing um, the relationship of Abu Bakr uh, with his parents for, for many different reasons, but among them, the, the, the narrative is, itself is not reliable. But rather remember that this surah is leading you to talking about al-ahqaf, those who exist on unstable grounds, those who exist in instability, and who ultimately could sink in quicksand, as, as I put it. 
the surah is alerting us as a people to that critical dynamic that if you want to build a foundation for istiqamah, for repose, for tranquility, well, the family in this dynamic described by the surah is critical. Don't think, for those, for instance, who say, well, what, is the, what about the institution of marriage? This is the response. The institution of marriage is critical to the dynamic of a foundation of a society that doesn't exist on quicksand. In a society in which the family is weak, the morality of that society is weak. But not just any family. A family that mirrors the dynamic described here. Parents who raise their children in piety and in love, know the mercy and compassion and love that flows through this area to the point that when the child grows up, the child is full of gratitude to Allah. Put it differently. Families that raise children in anxiety and fear or families that raise children in a paradigm of selfishness and self-centeredness or families that raise children that do not teach them the moral value of gratitude and sacrifice live on quicksand. Teaching your children gratitude, it's a moral value. There is nothing such as give me and I owe you nothing. That is why when our parents get old, we shouldn't throw them in... Old see, folks huh? homes. Old folks homes. Old folks homes. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So we shouldn't throw them in old folks' homes. We owe them care. They took care of us as children. Now we take care of them as seniors. A relationship of gratitude. Now, that relationship of gratitude will teach you gratitude to Allah. A selfish human being is selfish in everything. A selfish human being is selfish with their parents, is selfish with their children, is selfish with their spouses, is selfish with God. If you live looking out for number one, you can't have Iman. Because you, you worship yourself. So it's an amazing, wonderful, Surah Al-Ahqaf, 
in the midst of all of this, these people are going to confront Hijra. They're going to have to break up families. They're going to have to go to jihad. They're going to have to fight the war of Badr, where, where sometimes fa- a, a, a blood will meet blood in battle. So what moral value does Allah anchor at this point? Allah anchors, don't forget that to build the society, you need to build the moral foundation for a family unit. And not just any family, but a family anchored, centered around Iman. So when people ask me, for instance, because I've been getting a lot of correspondence about this, why are you opposed to men marrying, Muslim men marrying non-Muslim women and Muslim women marrying non-Muslim men? And I told them precisely because of this. You need, ideally, you need the family. Full cooperation of all members of the family to surround the child with Iman, Islam, with submission to Allah, and with the moral value of gratitude. It's not that I am I I am grateful to Allah that Allah gave me you as a child, but you should be grateful to Allah that I am your parent and I'm taking care of you. When you choose partners, for those of you who are not married, if you're married, khalas is too late. You know, unless, you know, you want to do something radical, but that's another conversation. But for those of you who are not married, think of this. Is your partner going to help you in raising someone in istiqamah in, in achieving Sirat al Mustaqim for your children so that you can have a dynamic within the family of no anxiety and no fear? Do you, do you aid one another in your relationship with Allah so that you as a family unit can teach your children what it means to trust Allah what it means to believe Allah and trust Allah? Or are you choosing a partner that's not going to be cooperative, who doesn't add anything, who doesn't contribute, or who even takes away? You know, when I see kids these days and, you know, on these dating apps, and they list, you know, degrees. Oh, I want a doctor. I want an engineer. I want a level of income. I want someone who's this tall. I want someone who has this waist, who has these physical proportions. What are you doing? I feel like shooting myself. Astaghfirullah, it would be suicide. But if suicide wasn't haram, I would do it. You know, khalas. What, what are you doing? Is this is this what the Quran teaches us about how you, you how you raise what you raise how someone how tall someone is what degrees they have what income they have? It is all about a partnership for Allah for the sake of Allah in the way of Allah.
Otherwise, you're among the ahqaf. You're on the ahqaf. There is, you know, they say that in Egypt, the divorce rate is higher than the United States. The divorce rate in Egypt is higher than the United States. Because people have lost their relationship with the Quran. Because in Egypt, that's why I didn't marry an Egyptian, by the way. You know, don't marry Egyptians. You, you know, you go, the first thing they tell you, how much dowry you're going to pay, what furniture are you going to bring, who's going to bring the fridge, who's going to bring the, the stove, who's going to bring the, I don't know what, the curtains, the furniture, the... What is this? You know, what, what type of relationship can you build on that? It, it starts with material, it will end with material. And no wonder then the court systems, the family law court systems are so packed in Egypt. Everyone is suing everyone else. In absolute nightmare. To the point that lawyers in Egypt told me that the worst field of practice now is family law. Because the delays are ridiculous, the, the lawsuits are so numerous. Okay, now immediately Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala contrasts that with an image, with a picture that is scary. What is the scary picture? Verse 17. As for one who says to his parents, Uffin lakum, fie upon you both. Do you promise me that I shall be brought forth when generations have passed away before, while there they call upon God for succor? Woe unto you, believe, surely God's promise, God's promise is true, whereat he says, this is not but fables of those of old. Now, of course, the translation takes away a lot from the spirit of these remarkable ayahs. Because what these ayahs say is, it's, it's, it draws a picture for you. A child arguing with their parents about exactly this, the belief. And this child says, Uffin lakum. Uffin lakum is not fi upon you or fi to you or whatever. It, it is like, the hell with you. What the hell are you talking about? That's uffin lakum. What the heck are you talking about? Ah, leave me alone. That's uffin lakum. Ah, I don't want to hear it. That's uffin lakum. Okay, I've heard it all before. Enough. That's uffin lakum. And they are so desperate. Amen. It is not the, the way that the translation sounds. They are so desperate. They, they, they yell out to God in desperation. Listen, please believe. Because Allah Allah's promise is true. To this he responds. Ah, this is just the mythology of the past. I've heard it all before. Enough. 
So the image is alarming. Very much different than the image of tranquility and so on. Here, there is tension in the family and scary tension. The parents are in desperation, calling upon God, please help. The child is telling them, get lost, leave me alone. I've heard it all before. These are just mythologies and old stories. The contrast is stark. And it's the, it, the Quran is gently telling you, Allah is gently telling you, no, one is... It is your choice. What type of family do you want to aspire for? What type of family you will pray to Allah for? Because what type of family you have is also what you pray for. Or if you don't pray for anything, you'll, you'll get the second family. If what you pray is for jobs and careers and exams and so on, but you don't pray for you know, children that are grateful and that are kind and that are beautiful, then, you know. And second, know that the if Allah gives you the first type of family, that's such a blessing. It's a gift from Allah. A gift that you should be fully grateful for. If Allah gives you the second type of family, whether because you deserved it or you, you didn't deserve it, because, you know, it's a, it either could be a curse or a true test. But it is a remarkably difficult situation. But you must aspire. You, it's clear what you must aspire for. And what type of What type of uh, what type of unit that you want to ultimately achieve? And this is a, it's a this is a big portion of a social foundation. In what what type of care and what type of focus and what type of attention? we give to the existence of family units that can teach children morality, faith, and gratitude. Doing so requires work. If, if we create societies in which parents are working from, you know, seven in the morning to eight at night, and they have daycare and, and, and childcare and so on, obviously, this, then this is not our goal. Because in a lot of societies now, in Muslim countries, that's exactly what they've done. They, they've replicated the West. They copied the West completely. The, chill, the, the parents are so busy making money that they're absent. But then, don't be surprised if your societies are full of anxiety and fear and instability. It's what you invest in the family. Don't be surprised. The other thing I'll note here, there is a report 
just for the sake of accuracy, that says that um, that verse that verse um, sorry, that verse 17 was revealed to address Abdul Rahman. Abdul Rahman is Abu Bakr's son. That reportedly that Abdul Rahman, before he became a good Muslim, his parents that he resisted being Muslim, and he that he did what this surah, what this ayah is talking about, was his parents. But this report is extremely unreliable. So if you find someone in a mosque saying this narrative about Abdul Rahman ibn Abu Bakr uh, in the context of Surah Al-Ahqaf, tell them this is false. The, 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 I've actually studied that and analyzed it, and it is just without foundation. And I was surprised that when I found some Muslims um, still teaching it as if it's something This uh, surah number 17 was not revealed about Abdul Rahman uh, ibn Abu Bakr, and, the, and it, there is no evidence that it was revealed about any specific person. But rather, as I said, that it is contrasting two family images. Okay, in this context, by the way, um, a lot of the books of hadith in the context of talking about ayah number 17, a lot of the books of hadith tell us some some things that I, I thought would be uh, edifying and, and, and useful to talk about. Um, there is a narrative uh, mentioned often in this context, uh, and you'd be surprised, that, like, um, why the occasion of, of verse 17, but verse 17 occupied Muslim commentators and Muslim scholars, and there was a lot written in the context of verse 17, in the context of, of strife in the family unit. Um The part that fascinated me the most are these narratives that talk about that describe the the um, the type of tranquility and the type of non-materialism that is specially applied to rulers and leaders of the Muslim community. So for instance, one of the reports that you often encounter is Umar ibn al-Khattab says, one day I went to visit, to, to, to see the Prophet and I entered and he was lying down on the floor and had a... Um, Khusfa uh, is like a, a, a very hard pillow. P 
pillow made of cheap straw that's rough under his head. And that lying, being on the floor, there was some dust covering him. Um, so I greeted him and I sat and I looked at him lying on the floor with the dust on top of him and this hard pillow under his head. And I said, you know, prophet of God, the rulers of Persia and the rulers of Byzantia and the Arabs of the Ghassasina and the Arabs um, in Iraq, the, the rulers of the, the, of the tribes of Iraq, they sleep on mattresses and pillows made of silk and cotton. And you won't even allow yourself a luxury beyond that. And the Prophet said, it, paraphrase it that those who have dunya in their heart chase away iman from their heart. I mean, it's it's interesting to reflect on. I mean, is the Prophet himself, the standard he applied to himself, of course, was very high. Uh, but even if we take something far less than that, you know, even if we don't want to sleep on floors with dust covering us and a hard pillow under our head, um it sort of shames a lot of the people that um, just spend on comfort and their entire life is on the level of comfort that they want to lead. There's another very interesting report, this time from Ali, radiallahu anhu. Um, that Ali, radiallahu anhu, would eat what his servants and slaves would eat. He would never eat anything better than what they eat. And uh, he would never buy a shirt without making sure he can afford to buy shirts for his servant at the same time. And that, in fact, people noticed that when he bought a shirt for himself and a shirt for his servant, he would give his servant his better shirt, the better shirt, and would take uh, the shirt that was less expensive and not as well made. Um, so anyway, and the narrative goes on about describing a lot of other things about Ali, how he, he would... He had a meticulous standard about the way he treated his family in not in always putting members, including servants or slash slaves, and that's a big topic, but anyway, we're not going to deal with it now. Um, and anyway, and there's also a report that he set free, he bought and freed a thousand slaves in his lifetime for the, 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 the pro-slavery idiots these days. Um, as a sign of his as of his piety, anyway, so eventually 
he's asked. Oh, I lost the page. Hold on one second. Okay. So eventually he is asked about it. About why why does he apply such a stringent standard to himself? And I his response is just beautifully you can't it's so beautiful that you can't pass over it. He said, Inna Allah farda ala immatil haq and yukadiru and fusuhum bidafatin nas kayla yatabayag bil fakiri fakra. What this means is that Allah's standard when it comes to the rulers and the leaders of Muslims is that they only should limit themselves to enjoying what the poorest and the most powerless among the people enjoy. That you see what the most needy in society have and that's what you should have. Why? So that the poor does never feels inferior because of his poverty. Of course, you know, it just blows your mind because when you see the leaders of Muslim countries today, and I am sure, because I, you know, I've, I've 30 years in the, in, in, in the United States and 30 years in Islamic circles, I've never saw this hadith or this narrative taught once. Look at the, the moral standard. We, we talk about power and we talk about, you know, race and empowerment and privilege and so on. Look at what the Islamic narrative has to contribute. That, in fact... You, if the leaders of society want to have a better standard of living, then they should raise the standard of living among the most poor. Because the standard of living that they should apply to themselves is the standard that the least privileged in society enjoy. And that was Ali's logic for and that was also the how they explained the the, the stringent standard that the Prophet applied to himself. That as long as the most poor in society cannot have more, then I'm not gonna have more. Okay, so then from 17 to 20, Allah reminds us of the inevitable fate and that often, often, you have to make a choice 
as to whether you prefer your goods paid forward on this earth or delayed till the hereafter. So when when in so for instance in ayah number twenty and the day when those who disbelieve are exposed to the fire, who the response to them, you squandered your good things in your life in the world and sought enjoyment therein. So today you are recompensed with the punishment of disgrace for having waxed arrogant. Stakbartum is not waxed arrogant, for having been arrogant. For having waxed arrogant upon the earth without right and for having been inequitous. So... The reminder here, يَوْمَ يُعْرَضُ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا عَلَى النَّارِ That the day that those who, and, and I like for kafir to be inequitous, because it, it, kufr is not just disbelief in God, but you could be a kafir who is officially a mu'min, someone who says that I, am a, I have iman, as far as the hereafter is concerned, not as far as the law, of identity is concerned on this earth, but that's another topic. So though the, the day that those who the hereafter confront punishment and they're told, well, you've enjoyed you you had your enjoyment on the on earth and now you have nothing. In the hereafter you've been f- paid forward. The عذاب الهوني بما كنتم تستكبرون في الأرض بغير الحق وبما كنتم تفسقون that we go back to that theme of egoism as the essence of sin that prevents you from being those anchored in Iman. I'm not going to say more about egoism here because there are other surahs that focus in, in, in distinct ways about the ego that we'll, inshallah we'll talk about in due time. Now here at this point the Quran takes us to the penultimate story of those who exist on quicksand. Those who exist on unstable Sand dunes, sand dunes, the Ahqaf. Those who wishfully see things and say, oh, that's good news, they're good for us, this is what we want. But in fact, in these things is precisely their doom. And this takes us to all the way to uh, ayah number 25. Let me make sure I didn't forget anything. Where, of course, we, we, the Quran puts us in the picture of the, the, the confrontation with Hud 
where would قال إنما العلم عند الله وأبلغكم ما أرسلت به ولكني أراكم قوما تجهلون who told them that you are people who are fundamentally ignorant but they're not going to accept his message and they're going to rely on their own faculties and their own assessment and that's when they see the emerging clouds as we've talked about and as we said, وَلَقَدْ مَكَنَّاهُمْ فِيمَا إِنْ مَكَنَّاكُمْ فِيهِ وَجَعَلْنَا لَهُمْ سَمْعًا وَأَفْئِذَةً وَأَفْئِذَةً فَمَا أَغْنَى عَنْهُمْ سَمْعُهُمْ وَلَا أَبْصَارُهُمْ وَلَا أَفْئِذَةُهُمْ وَلَا وَلَا أَفْئِذَتُهُمْ مِنْ شَيْءٍ إِذْ كَانُوا يَشْحَدُونَ بِآيَاتِ بِآيَاتِ اللَّهِ وَحَاقَ بِهِمْ مَا كَانُوا بِهِ يَسْتَهْزِئُونَ that we've given them rational faculties that ultimately they relied on. And as I said, as so many commentators pointed out, that those people were not stupid. They were endowed with full faculties, the full power of reason. But yet they're ignorant because relying on the power of reason, your rational faculties, the rational faculties represented by the sam'an absar, by the hearing, your sight, and your by, by the heart, meaning your ability to think and analyze. But, but ultimately, these turned out to avail you nothing, to not to take you from the, 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 the unstable grounds of al-ahqaf, as those people, the ahqaf that these people lived in, to the grounds that are stable, the, the grounds of the grounds of no fear and no anxiety. Okay, let's pause here to pray Maghrib before we get into the, the jinn segue. Did you hear the Adhan? It was beautiful. I actually put my ears on to hear it. It was really beautiful, wasn't it? You want to do that then again? Oh, it was, hold on. You want to do that then again? Okay. You want her to do that then again? Should I put it on my ears? Oh my god, you're putting a lot of pressure on me. Okay. <laughs> I don't have to put it on my ears if it's no, going to bother okay. you. No, no, it's okay. You practice. <clears throat> Allahu Akbar.
بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم فلولا نصرهم الذين اتخذوا من دون الله قربانا آلهة بل ضلوا عنهم وذلك إفكهم وما كانوا يفترون This is آية 28 Why then did they whom they had taken as gods apart from God and as a means of drawing nigh unto God not help them nigh they forsook them that was their perversion and that which they used to fabricate I mean the, the important thing to say about the, this is that it, stating for the, the obvious from the perspective of Iman that you whatever you take as a partner to God, and again, I underscore that it does not just mean idols, and it doesn't just mean worshipping Mary or, you know, seeking help from Mary, uh, but anything that you sub that ultimately becomes the source of submission in your life, including your own ego, it fails you, and it will ultimately fail you. And it's reorienting our outlook towards looking to God as our support and our mainstay. Okay, now, what is the main challenge for so many people that are a people with a mission? a people with a moral, ethical mission, or a people with a mission of Iman. So often, the challenge that they confront and the main source of doubt that overcomes them or the main source that makes them fail in their mission is to find that they are having no effect or having a limited effect 
that they, in fact, no one is listening to them. No one is, is answering their call. And, of course, regardless of who you are, you will be overcome by doubt and by frustration. And ultimately, this could erode you as a human being, if not erode your iman itself. And subhanAllah, here is where this revelation where Allah is speaking to Muhammad and telling him that jinn listen to the Quran and that after listening to the Quran they then carried the message forward قالوا يا قومنا إن سمعنا كتابا أنزل من بعد موسى مصدقا لما بين يديه يهدي إلى الحق وإلى طريق مستقيم. The jinn speaking to their own kind, saying we've heard now a revelation coming after Moses that guides to the straight path to طريق المستقيم, which as we said, is a theme in this surah. يَا قَوْمَنَا أَجِيبُوا دَاعِيَ اللَّهِ وَآمِنُوا بِهِ يَغْفِرْ لَكُمْ مِنْ ذُنُوبَكُمْ وَيَجِرْكُمْ مِنْ عَذَابٍ أَلِيمٍ وَمَنْ لَا يُجِبْ دَاعِ اللَّهِ فَلَيْسَ بِمُعْجِزٍ فِي الْأَرْضِ وَلَيْسَ مِنْ دُونِهِ أَوْلِيَاءُ أُولَائِكَ فِي ضَلَالٍ مُبِينٍ So this is, takes us from Ayah 29 to 32. What is the significance of talking about jinn hearing the Quran and responding to the Quran here at this point? Well, a little background is necessary. At the time that Surah Al-Ahqaf is revealed, the Prophet ﷺ, remember that Khadija, who was his main supporter, or one of the, 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 one of the anchors in his life, that family unit that the Quran talks about in the same Surah, has died. And his uncle, who provided him with a lot of support has also died. And Muslims are confronting intense persecution in Mecca. And at that time, the Prophet ﷺ travels to Ta'if in order to ask Ta'if for protection and support. And not only does Ta'if reject him, but they turn violent and they stone him. And they stone him so badly that he bleeds. He's covered in blood. And is injured and is unable to walk back. So he's suffering immensely. And Muslims are persecuted. There are no new converts to Islam. The number of converts to Islam has 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 stabilized or has remained constant. 
he's lost his support and he went to Ta'if with horrible consequences. This is now before things will unfold with Medina and Medina will support him. What is significant is in is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is as if telling the Prophet even when you don't see and hear the consequences, you don't know what the consequences are. In other words, he's not aware that the consequences can even be in the realm of jinn. It is the jinn who are answering the call, although he is being rejected by human beings. The lesson from this is a lesson of not despairing because the consequences are not up to you. The results are not within your control. You have a mission and you have the truth on your side and you anchor in yourself in these certitudes and in these principles and you do what you have to do but the realm of consequences even if in, they're in an unseen dimension so as and especially in the, the commentaries written by Sufis they, they've taken this lesson to heart that they say, I mean, some of the most beautiful articulations and, and, and ponderings upon this is they say, even if you find yourself in the wilderness with no one to hear the call, do the call for prayer, the call to prayer. Do the adhan in the wilderness, even if there's no one around. If, if you feel that this is the charge, then the consequences are left entirely up to Allah. And note again the difference in paradigms. The people of Hud relied on the empirical consequences that they saw in the clouds that turned out to be their doom, as opposed to relying on the principle itself regardless of the consequences, is shift in paradigm. I wish that I could carry or take you on a journey with some of the Sufi thoughts on this ayah addressing the jinn. And for instance, that if the Sufi is, because Sufi is often confronted that, if the Sufi is traveling and everywhere they go, they're, they're turned away and, and people are busy doing their business and trade and making money and doing whatever they're doing. And then the Sufi has cycles of dhikr that are supposed to invite people to Islam then they do the dhikr in the wilderness. They, they do it in an abandoned mosque, even if no one else in the is in the mosque. And there's some very, very beautiful discourse on this. But it is 
speaking to the Prophet as an exemplar to us. Then Surah Al-Ahqaf is leading to the close or is revving up to the end of the of the surah and takes us back to a reminder of the ethical principle of the of the non-ahqaf if you will existence alam yaraw anna أن الله الذي خلق السماوات والأرض ولم يعي بخلقهن بقادر على أن يحيي الموت بل إنه على كل شيء قدير ويوم يعرض الذين كفروا على النار أليس هذا بالحق قالوا بلى وربنا قالوا بلى وربنا قال فذوق العذاب بما كنتم تكفرون So the point that is obvious from the perspective of Iman, the, the point that is repeatedly, we are repeatedly reminded of. The heavens and the earth are meticulously calibrated for existence. And that the maker of the heavens and the earth and existence, in the same way that life sprouts out of nothing that that is capable of bringing life to an arid deserted area so you will be brought to life again this is nothing for allah it is not for you it is remarkable for allah it is non-issue that bringing all those that allah created back to life again and that Allah experienced no exhaustion, no exertion through this creation. Now, of course, this is important because of the contrast with the biblical narrative that Allah needed to rest on the sixth day or, or whatever, on the seventh day. And the, the, the constant reminder that in the hereafter, the truth becomes undeniable. You are again brought to the consequences. That you are brought to the consequences of your actions. And the, the obvious reminder isn't this the truth that you struggled with so much in your life? Isn't this what you went back and forth? It is now undeniable and clear. And then the final refrain to the Prophet after taking you on this journey, teaching reminding the Prophet and through the Prophet the followers of the Prophet the difference between an unstable life and a stable life, a life anchored on Iman and an istiqama and a life that is anchored on wishful thinking 
and empirical thinking and and a life without trust in the divine, even a social life that is based on principles of gratitude and principles of morality versus a social life that is egotistical and self-focused, after teaching you that it is not the consequences that matter, but the principle of your mission that matters, comes the final refrain to the Prophet فَصْبِرْ كَمَا صَبَرَ أُولِي الْعَزْبِ مِنَ الرُّسُلِ وَلَا تَسْتَعْجِلْ لَهُمْ كَأَنَّهُمْ يَوْمَ يَرَوْنَ مَا يُعَدُونَ لَمْ يَلْبَسُوا إِلَّا سَاعَةً مِنْ نَهَارِ بَلَاغٌ فَهَلْ يُهْلَكُ إِلَّا الْقَوْمُ الْفَاسِقُونَ Now, I don't even need to look at the translation because however it's translated, it's not going to be adequate. So I'm going to just paraphrase it. So persevere. Because the messengers, like the messengers of the past, persevered. Those messengers who went, are the messengers who went through great tribulations and great suffering. Like, for instance, Ayyub who was ill for a very long time, or like Zunun, who was swallowed by a whale, and, and so on and so forth. Or like Jesus, who suffered persecution, and so on. And ultimately, the na- human nature is that you want to see results. You want to see consequences. So, the very simple restraint, وَلَا تَسْتَعْجِلْ وَلَا تَسْتَعْجِلْ لَهُمْ I'm just curious what, how they translated it. Yeah, and seek not to hasten for them. Yeah. It's not really, well, seek not to hasten for them. وَلَا تَسْتَعْجِلْ لَهُمْ it's like saying don't in your own mind and in your don't think of how fast things are going. Don't worry, don't concern yourself with the pace of whether you are achieving or not achieving. As if saying this is up to Allah. You just do your job. Because ultimately, you know, in your time, in your human time, in your temporal time, you see things as happening slowly or happening fast. But that's your perception. And as proof of that is that when people are resurrected, life to them on earth with all its ups and downs will seem like they've lived but an hour. That all this existence, all this story of life that they went through, as they stand resurrected, they will think back and say, 
did we each actually even is that even a reality? It's like when you when you go through something and you say that it wasn't a dream. At that point, this entire life on earth will appear as if it was a dream. It went so fast, and for looking back at it, what was that? Balagun. Balagun is like saying, this is a, a proclamation. Balagun, it's like telling you, it's a, not just a proclamation, but a promise. It's like, I am telling you, I'm giving you the, the, the ultimate it, the 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 the, uh, the kernel of everything, a proclamation, a promise. What is the promise? It is the entire surah that is the balagh. The entire moral lesson of the surah is the balagh. فهل يهلك فهل يهلك إلا صار فهل يهلك إلا القوم الفاسقون؟ Ultimately, those who are يهلك is not just destruction; it's not just punishment. But ultimately, those who go astray, it is literally exactly like the people of Ahqaf. The people who are standing on unstable grounds. It is a commentary upon entire humanity as, as it drifts away from Iman, as it exists without the anchor of Iman, thus existing in fear and anxiety and in equity and in injustice. The inequitous, the fasikun, the inequitous, the inequitous to others, the inequitous to themselves, are lost on this earth and in the hereafter. Al-Ahqaf was among the surahs that, as I said, comes right in that critical moment between intense persecution and the decision or the, the, the order to migrate to Medina. And so it is one of these critical formative surahs that are as if telling Muslims, okay, getting re get ready for the next stage. So for instance, Surah Al-Ankabut, the chapter Al-Ankabut, the spider, which talks about the hijrah itself. Al-Ahqaf, like Surah Al-Jinn, by the way, is getting the grounds ready for the level of sacrifice that will be reflected in a chapter like Al-Ankabut. But for us, 
it is if if we don't learn from the dynamic between the revelation of the Quran and the seerah of the Prophet and the followers, then we miss the entire point. Then, then we don't learn anything. Because you could read the Ahqaf as basically, oh, just another surah talking about hellfire and talking about past nations and then ultimately telling the Prophet, be patient. Then you miss entire everything. Then you've learned nothing. The way that you learn is precisely as I laid out. You connect revelation to history, to the transition in periods, and you extract the lesson like the early Muslims extracted the lesson and called the Surah Al-Ahqaf because they understood that this is the Surah among the Surahs that communicates that essential lesson. Are you are you going to create the foundations for a life in which you resist a society plagued by anxieties and fears and ultimately injustice? Or do you seek a society that is anchored in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Society and individual, because it, it, it applies equally at both levels. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, and that is Surah Al-Ahqaf, alhamdulillah. Uh, okay, one note I made about something I read that I liked. Um, several, you know, of course, I, I want to tell you something because of, of a couple of questions, that, just emails and stuff like that that I got. Um, if, um, if you read one tafsir, two tafsirs, three, five, will you get everything that I'm telling you? And the answer is no. What I present is the result of an obsessive reading of tafsir, every tafsir that I could put my hands on, whether published or not published. This is the level of seriousness that a scholar of Quran is required of a scholar of Quran. People who, people who read the Quran is one thing. But if you position yourself, if you dare position yourself as a scholar of the Quran, then you have to be terrified of the responsibility and liability before Allah and the accountability. And therefore, because of that terror, because of the fear that Allah would tell me, ultimately, you could have been more diligent in studying my book. There is no tafsir, no school of thought, Shi'i, Sunni, or otherwise, that I have not read and read with great relish 
and as I said, published or unpublished. But that it is not enough because I am convinced that in addition, after you read all the tafsir, you must do dhikr. Allah does not, the Quran does not yield its secrets without intense humility and piety before it. Without dhikr, all your knowledge is like the knowledge of these people of Hud. It's just empirical. It's just data. It is full humility before Allah and before the Quran that allows you then to start seeing the picture come together. Among the things that I've read, that I've noted, is a commentary about a comment about the the uh, the people of um, Hud. Apparently, they were uh, a people taken to celebration, so they would party a lot. Um, so when they saw the clouds, the first thing they did is they partied. And it just stayed with me that among the characteristics of these people is that they partied. Every time they, they thought something good was coming their way, they would party. And the irony is that they were destroyed after their party. You know, if, if we translate it to the images of our days and age, you hold a big party and you have all the bottles of beer everywhere and, you know, people, the vomit, the stink of beer and the stink of vomit when people get drunk. And then, boom, you're destroyed right after your party. Um, it reminds me of people that just tend to, you know, make a killing in the stock market, for instance, and they go nuts and they're... And, of course, that killing in the stock market could be their very doom. You know, or they play the lottery and they make, they win the lottery and they, they're celebratory and ecstatic, but it could be their very doom. That, that's the type of, when, when we say that someone anchored an iman, they're never ecstatically happy. And they're never thoroughly depressed. They're always on an even keel. Because they understand that it is only Allah that knows what is best. And regardless of what you think you've made on this earth in material terms, there is no reason for excessive jubilation and there is no reason for despair. You accept yourself as in Allah's hands, and what you have is tranquility and peace. Okay, I think I've I've covered all my notes. Okay, alhamdulillah. to take a break while people send in questions.
Okay, let's do so I can use the restroom. Okay. So why don't we take like a five minute break and you guys can send questions either um, through the, the chat, um, either on YouTube or um, on Google Meet, um, or you can, um, I guess, text me too, if you have my number. So, um, and then we'll, we'll come back and start the Q&A, inshallah.
You ready? Okay, assalamu alaikum. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, so the first question, um, you can hear me, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Jazakallah khair for another great session. I was intrigued by the fact that verse 5 states that the call of those who worship anything other than God is not answered. I imagine that an atheist um, would probably argue the opposite. For example, that all our material actions have consequences that we can see, and so they are quote-unquote answered, while God in the atheist view is often accused of being silent. In this sense, this verse seems to me to flip the materialist viewpoint on its head by saying the exact opposite of what an atheist would say. Is this another instance uh, reiterating that the difference between the two points of view is that as believers, we shouldn't expect the quote-unquote answers from God to be necessarily tangible and material? Yeah, the, the critical... Note that that verse number five brings in the factor that is always absent in the in the material outlook, and that's Yawm al-Qiyamah. إِلَى يَوْمِ الْقِيَامَةِ وَهُمْ عَنْ دُعَائِهِمْ غَافِلُونَ That the issue is not consequences. The, the, the issue is a power. Is there a power in this universe beyond the powers that are yielded by phys physical laws? In, in, in a nutshell, the laws of causation, the cause of effect. Is there a steward is there a force that plays an active role from the non-believer? And that's why the critical issue is Iman itself. If it's a non-starter, if you say there is no force beyond the physical laws, and the physical laws is all there is, well, then the next thing, then the only thing that I have to tell you is, well, you're going to find out in the final day whether the consequences are borne out on this life or not. The ultimate thing is that in resurrection, we'll, you know, we'll meet again. And that's why, you know, the, the famous... Uh, um, uh, ayah, وَعِنْدَ اللَّهِ تَجْتَمَعُ الْخُصُومُ That, you know... All dis disputants, all conflict, will ultimately be put before God in the hereafter. But if you start from the premise of I have Iman, then seeing, then being oblivious to the role of the divine is an inconsistency in your Iman that could rise to the level of hypocrisy. And so are we talking to believers or non-believers? That, that's a critical issue. 
the other the other thing is that of course you know for for those who say well you know it is uh, uh, material things there is another surah that that inshallah will will, will you know inshallah will will cover inshallah um that talks about whether those who lack iman and put their trust in physical things ultimately like themselves. And as we'll see, inshallah, when we get there, that in fact they don't. In fact, as much as they give themselves in terms of material rewards, they attempt to, it's a dynamic with the self that is based fundamentally on lack of the love of the self. They, they, they're incapable of loving themselves, regardless of how much they, and that's because life in its different phases will hand them versions of themselves from the time they're children to the time they're, you know, young people and they're, to the time they're middle-aged, to the time that they're old, and these different versions of themselves will are are inevitably inconsistent with the self-perception that they try to nurse and 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 develop for themselves. But inshallah, we'll get there. Inshallah, that this this. This chase, this you know, when you you consistently chasing after the desire to be satisfied, but you're unable to achieve it because it is you are material, and when you inject material upon material, the the net result is zero. Um. That is why, I mean, when I try to think of someone that doesn't go beyond the bounds, I've never met a human being that is limited to the physical world that you can describe as having a peaceful or tranquil aura. It, It just hasn't happened. And, and it's not just my testimony, but the testimony of all spiritual leaders and all aura readers throughout history. Um, you add material to material, you get zero. There's, there's no addition. There's no value added. Um, Okay, thank you for an enlightening session. It is truly remarkable when reading the Quran within the dynamic of the Sirah. What is your advice when one faces non-aligning narratives in the tradition? How much consideration should one give the fact that most major works were compiled many decades after the events themselves? I mean, that's of course a a very... uh, 
deep question. Um, the the only thing I, I can really say in, in this context is that this really underscores the importance of scholarship and scholarship that thinks out of the box. Um, so much, I mean, one, we have a real, real scholarly deficit. Um, because I, I, you know, it's just, it's very, very, the, the efforts at even studying the Quran was any level of scholarly rigor, the type of rigor that we bring to, to other fields of knowledge, it's just not there. It's just not there. Uh, so that that's one. I mean, and the importance of a scholar that, that expends their entire life studying a field can't be underestimated because this is not a part-time engagement. This is not something you do on the side. This is not something that, you know, as you lead a successful career and I don't know what, that you just engage in. This is something that takes over your life completely. And that before you know it, you've reached the end of your life and there's so much more to learn. And the way it's supposed to work is that you have students that you hand over your knowledge to and then they continue the journey. And, and that's how we get to be able to make advancements and understandings like aligning the Quran to the seerah. Um, that's, that's one. The other thing is that the style, the methodology of conveying information undergoes so many different transformations in history. So, you know, if you look at the very earliest ways of the way that people conveyed uh, what they knew about the Quran, it could be, it was sufficient for them to know the names of surahs. And that was sufficient to communicate. That was a signifier in their day and age to communicate everything that they knew. Then we come to an age where what is most important is that you document as much of the reports of companions and successors and Alil Bayt as possible about the Quran. And again, the person who's doing this is doing this in an epistemological framework. They, they are relying on a commun interpretive communities, communities of knowledge that understand the function of these narrations. That these narrations are not there to be taken at face value, but these narrations are to communicate a certain discourse about these ayat. Then we come to a different phase where you have schools of thought and different madhahib and different orientations, and each madhab is trying to show the merits of their own methodology to reading and interpreting the Quran. And so as they're commenting on the Quran, they are registering points about their own madhab and 
the mazhabs of others, making arguments and noting counter-arguments. And again, if you are not familiar, familiar with the epistemological frameworks of the time and period, what were the debates? Why were making, people making this point? Why does a Razi keep responding to the Mu'tazila every other comment in his tafsir, for instance? The Razi constantly responds to the Mu'tazila. Why? Why doesn't Mataridi consistently seem to be, seem to be, supporting various arguments that the Mu'tazila made about the Quran in his tafsir? Why doesn't Mawardi avoid all of this and simply notes different schools of thought about each ayah, but doesn't, doesn't engage in, doesn't talk about the Mu'tazila, doesn't talk about any other madhab, and just not. All of this is scholarship. All of this is studying epistemological frameworks and the way that history interacted with systems of knowledge. And, and, and so on. But then, it is not enough to just understand all of that. We must make contributions. We must make, you know, ultimately, may I be wrong about a lot of things, about the way that I read the Quran in its historical context. Of course. I mean, being, being wrong is part of the pursuit of knowledge. And only a tyrant and a fool would assume that they're correct about anything. But a true scholar would hope that they're making contributions so that they will be corrected. And in being corrected, you are also being honored. Because if, if you're making an argument and no one engages this argument... I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I keep going back to the to, to to the only thing that worked in Islamic history, and and that is the 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 sensitivity of wealth to the importance of the intellectual project. If wealth is not sensitized to the importance of intellects and the role that intellects play then you get a failed ummah you get a failed nation exactly what we have today it is as simple as that if a rich person thinks that they can earn their place in Jannah by building a mosque being a member of the board of directors and playing politics in the board of directors and giving Sunday classes where they talk, where they spew off stuff that they know nothing about, and they think that this is their past, then we're failed, we're doomed. If a rich person knows their place and says, my role is to fund through a waqf those who dedicate their entire life to the pursuit of knowledge, and I give money to that, and I humbly step back, and my reward is with Allah, then we're, we're in the game. And, and honestly, I, you know, we, we had it, we've lost it as a nation in history, and I don't know how to get it back. I don't know how to get it back, because I'm not happy with the way wealth 
when I see rich people support intellectual projects that have no intellectual content or power within them whatsoever, what do you say about that? Okay, um, thank you to the Sheikh for this beautiful revision of the surah. I wanted to ask, given that we live in the West, it usually needs a two-income household. Our generation is heavily threatened by financial difficulties and we don't want to live in poverty. Also, admittedly, we don't want to leave our kids with our parents because we usually have a different vision for childbearing. What would the Sheikh suggest as an alternative to daycare and both parents working? And then I'm going to add a second uh, question that's related. Does Islam have a metaphysics of marriage and family units? Can the foundations of a devout ummah be built on a non-traditional family unit, including single parents, homosexual couples, etc.? Uh, the second question is, is much harder and would take us um, um, because when I mean, keep in mind when you say does Islam have, you're you're really saying you're talking about the Islamic tradition and the interpretive traditions of Islam. And if we get into the interpretive traditions to Islam of Islam, then we then we have to engage in a scholarly discourse about what the various interpretive traditions say. So, for instance, it's rather um, noteworthy that. In uh, Grace gave me a list of books uh, published in the Islamic studies field, and she asked me to to note the, the books that I would recommend. And in these books, there are about a good body of scholarship, and I didn't notice it till I, I looked at the list and I thought back about all this, the material that I've read. A good body of scholarship about homosexuality uh, in Islamic discourses, in, in written by Western scholars. There is practically nothing in Arabic. I mean, the very little about, although the Islamic tradition and that a lot of people don't know that there there the interpretive traditions of Islam wrote a great deal about homosexuality and wrote a great deal about a, a gender that is neither female nor male. Which is, I mean, if you look at just law, then you're going to get a very skewed picture. But if you look at theology, and you look at philosophy, and you look at literature, and it is interesting that it is so many Western scholars that ended up going back and reading a lot of these material and writing books about them. Um, I mean, it is also noteworthy that a lot of the Muslims that talk about homosexuality in the Islamic tradition don't even bother reading what Western scholars wrote about this because there is a considerable body of scholarship that you can read before one... Um, so, but so if you know, and that's a very big topic. Um, the the first 
I mean, the first question is also connected to the to the second question in many ways. But anyway, um, first, I I want to I want to uh, problematize, if you will. I mean, that, that that's an interesting word, but problematize the assumption of um of a double income family and all of that i mean is not that i'm saying it's not true but what i'm saying is that we must revisit what we consider to be important uh demands upon our lives um I mean, I I don't I don't want to embarrass people by by naming them or identifying them, but you know I know people where um, very close people where the main income, for instance, became uh, the source of income became what a wife earned, and the husband would bring additional income here and there from various jobs here and there, but the way that this family confronted because the wife had the higher earning potential, that became the, the financial backbone of the family. And the husband stepped in in the role of the caretaker and and became, and the husband was also more spiritually advanced than the wife and raised beautiful, beautiful children, Islamically beautiful children, uh but it took a lot of financial sacrifices a lot of financial humility um to be able to do that it it took also raising the children with its level of self-contentment that they don't care what others have and they don't look at what others enjoy. Um, I mean, it is, it, it, for a lot of people, unfortunately, I've noticed that what they perceive as necessary financial demands um, is, is, is really their expectations and the type of, rug they want in the house and the type of, you know, location that they want their house in and the type of car and the type of couch and the type of dinner table and the type of, you know, the type of everything. Um, so you'd be, I think a lot of people would be surprised what happens when you live in a different paradigm where it's basically the reason we have a couch is that it's something to sit on and we don't care whether it impresses guests or it doesn't impress guests. And we don't care if it's the same couch that we've had for 30 years or it's not the same couch that we've had for 30 years. Um, it, it, and so on and so forth. So that's, that's one. Because it is... It is a critical part of and, and a critical part of thinking about 
how to organize a family, how much time the children was get, would get. If it's seen as a priority, I've seen families mold themselves very differently. Then now, if you're talking about a truly dire situation, where you know ultimately you live in a place like L.A. and the combined income of the family is going to be, I don't know, you know, combined income of the family is going to be fifty thousand or sixty thousand, and they don't want to live in. Uh, what's that part of it? East LA or something like that, you know, in a bit really dangerous. Um, you know, because I've seen that as well, uh, especially with families that... Um, Then the you know the ideally ideally it is the Muslim community that would step in to help. Ideally, that there would be a Muslim infrastructure that focuses on the needs in, in the same way that we read these reports about Ali and so on, where you know the the heads the rulers of the community community or the leaders of community should not think of themselves as entitled to enjoy more than what the poorest member of the community has. Ideally, you would have a community that thinks of taking care of the members of the community as a charge laid upon them as a single ummah by Allah. Now, of course, I know that this is completely absent from, you know, you don't go to mosques and hear lectures about how the medical doctors of the community have to take care of the agricultural workers of the Muslim community and that they must create, for instance, cheap daycare so that those who can't afford, so, so you can safely put your children in a place where they're taken care of and that the community thinks of that as an obligation. But that's, again, a part of the way that we've, we've diluted into Islam into nothing. Um, when I step into into communities and see the way that they they spend money and they do not at all worry about the disadvantaged, it offends me to the core. And I, and I know that the, the, this is not a blessed community. This is a community that doesn't have Allah's grace with it. Um, we are on this earth to do good and to do good a priori towards other Muslims. We owe them an obligation. But in the absence of ideal, the, the only thing left to you, and in, in the, in, if there is true need, is prayer. It's to pray a lot. I, I don't know what else to say. I mean, you just, you know, you just rely. I mean, I know a family, for instance, a man from India. The father worked, the mother didn't work. They had four children, and they lived in the Bronx. And um, the, da the daughter that I was friends with went to an Ivy League school on a scholarship, and the children grew up grew up to be marvelous. And you know, when when I I'm like, what the heck did you do to raise the children like that? And 
they were extremely pious. A lot of prayer. And you can see the hands of, the miraculous hands of the divine in the way that the children grew up. Uh, so don't discount that. I mean, don't don't minimize that. Um, yeah, have we said enough about that, or should we say more? No, I think it's enough. Grace says that that's enough. <laughs> no, I can't say more about this. You can. No. <laughs> Do you see how convenient I am? <laughs> Um, okay. Well, so I think we got a similar question, but I think you already addressed it. Um, to what extent have modern Muslims adopted what I consider the myopic white Christian understanding of family and gender roles? I think yeah, really precisely. That issue. Yeah. Okay. Um, next question. Um, reliance or... And, and by the way, you know, because I'm sensitized to this from the Islamic Center of Southern California. I, in the Islamic Center of Southern California, the way these people were taught is in Islam, a woman's money is her money, and it is the man. So you have gender equality, but it's the man that must provide, and the woman can buy jewelry with her money. I mean, it, it, this, is, this is the result of dogma and demagoguery and apologetics. The family unit in Islam, the whole point is that to come together in a true partnership to create a blessed habitat blessed by Allah to raise blessed children and that these these myopic outdated ideas are very dangerous they're just they have their place in situations when we're talking about disempowered, uneducated women, then yes, they should save their money just in case their, you know, lousy husband dumps them eventually and goes and marries some younger woman. But in situations where women are educated and, and, and empowered, uh, then they should take care of the family. That, that should be their priority. Yeah, I mean, to add to that point, I mean, the, the professor and I in our 25 years of marriage, there were times where, you know, when he was a graduate student and I was working in a professional, um, you know, corporation where I was making more money and then that changed. Um, and, it, you know, and so it's gone back and forth, but we've always had, you know, shared account, no idea that um, I should have money to spend on jewelry or whatever. It just is a very foreign concept. and. Now it's that, you know, I handle all of the finances um, and I, if I've said before, you know, the way our partnership works is that I pretty much try to handle all of the mundane issues so I can clear the plate so the sheikh can just focus on his work. And that's how it works in, in our family and it works well, um, but it's the shared cause and the shared um, division of labor according to what makes sense for what, what we're doing, so. If, if any of you, whether you're a man or a woman, and you marry a scholar, so if the man marries a woman who's a scholar, or if the woman marries a man who's a scholar, know that they're entirely useless in life. And, <laughs> you know, just take charge of everything and say, go get lost and read your books. You know, 
just produce good ideas for humanity. And that's my best advice to you. Don't trust them with anything <laughs> practical. They're going to create a disaster and it will blow up in your face eventually. So. <laughs> okay. Um, next question. Um, reliance or building life's foundation on mundane or material pursuits is like building a foundation on quicksand. The surah also brings up idolatry and taking other gods besides Allah. Is one way of understanding idolatry then is that we can define it <clears throat> as what we build our reliance upon? In other words, if I ultimately am placing my sense of security and peace on worldly things, am I deifying those things? Although I may not be worship, worshiping it, at least by common definitions of worship, is the orientation of something in life to my sense of safety a form of worship? What does this consideration say about modern forms of idolatry? For example, is an organization that compromises its Islamic ethics for pragmatic reasons, then worshiping something other than God due to the very nature of where they orient their sense of reliance and sense of what holds power? Is their compartmentalization of God's station and ability a form of associating partners with God? Yeah, this is precisely, I mean, it's well put, because it's, it's precisely what, what I uh, try to communicate. De deification, uh, idolatry can take the form of deification, and you can worship false gods. I mean, worship is a form of submission and deference. It's what you tend to defer to and give priority to in your, in your life. What is worthy of deference in your mind, in your psychology. And if you defer to, to for instance, um, consistently defer to um, uh, the wishes of your parents, Regardless of what these wishes entail, or what they, or what they, or what they want you to do, you're deifying them. Yeah. But what is more problematic in the way because our society has been, our societies in the modern world, has been largely shaped by capitalism. As I mean, the, as as the world international universal ideology that has invaded every nook and cranny of the world. It has, uh, and and with some very devastating consequences of, especially in indigenous and native cultures and so on. And the very logic of the way that we structure the world of economic circulation and reliance on debt and reliance on especially debt as a way of financing things and keeping the world in motion is that we end up deferring to um, to that thing we call money I mean whatever it is because obviously money is not paper uh, it is the value that we all agree to all agree to give something that is often not even tangible and we don't really know what it is 
you know, like bitcoins and stuff like that, or, you know, so it's whatever. So it, it is. It is truly a mythology. If you want to see a social mythology at work, it's money. And if you want to see a deification of something, it's money. Um, and especially the way we've structured the, the dominant cultures, it is it is money that and and you see this, you know, if wherever you go in the world, money that takes priority over all human relations, money that takes priority over honor, tradition, uh, respect for elders, respect for, or, or, uh, or compassion for youngsters, or um, all the traditional things that humanity developed in order to organize and structure life in a way that makes things less harsh and um, uh, less traumatizing. I mean, it took humanity a long time to develop the idea of ethics and the idea of something like respect your elders. Why did it take them a long time? Because they weren't born this way. They, they sociologically developed it. You know, part, partly... In, in innate intuition, but partly sociological experiences that taught humanity life is too harsh. Things in the long term become too traumatizing when you don't respect your elders or care for your youngsters. But post-colonial capitalism has eroded a lot of these ethics and reoriented them towards a fiscal system um, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And, you know, every once in a while we all realize it doesn't make a lot of sense and the market crashes and we have an economic crisis. But most of the time we keep going on with the mythology. You know, are, are we talking about a monster that there is no point in challenging? I think in your realm as an individual, you can live within the parameters of ethics and be wisely critical of that fiscal policy that is constantly invading your space and say, pay homage to me, pay, pay allegiance to me. You know, there is the world of fashion and the world of social looks and social perceptions and the world of consumption that keeps making demands upon you and effectively preaching to you. You know, you, we're preached to every time you turn on the television, we're preached to every time you're on your computer, and the preaching is buy into my system. It, you know, you can't change the world, but what you can definitely do is be in a healthy way, critical of that very aggressive, evangelical, uh, hedonistic religious system of capitalism. Because capitalism is like a religious system. It, it requires of you blind faith. Why is this worth what it's worth? Why is gold worth what is gold? What about gold? It's yellow color? It just is. 
It, it's completely irrational. I mean, you want to talk about Iman? Why is gold worth what is gold? Why isn't some other rare material that has a different color worth the same as gold? Why do we suddenly have put great value at certain, uh, like for instance, you know, um, the, the part that I'm fascinated with, you know, all the violins, like Stradivarius violins, you know how much they're worth in the world today? Huge market, huge money. You, a lot of times, the money that you are dealing with, you never see. It is all based on iman, on a system of faith. You know, when when a bank tells you you your account is X, it's based on faith. Because if tomorrow as happens in some other countries, you go to the bank and tell you, well, there was a governmental decision and now your money is worth half of what it's worth, your bank account just dropped by 50%, that's your new reality and that's your new faith. I mean, think about that. We, the materialist world relies as on faith. It's just they don't like to admit it. And without that system of shared mythology that we all engage in, the capitalist system wouldn't survive a day. Okay, this is a, an easy question. Um, may I ask the title, author, or author of the book that you're reading about beliefs of the crowd or the herd mentality? Ah, uh, okay. You know what? Or we can grab it at the break. We, yeah, we don't. Yeah, just, uh, hold on one second. <laughs> okay, I didn't mean for you to get up. Yeah, yeah, uh, I actually meant to bring it. I know you forgot. Okay. Does anybody have any more questions they want to send our way? Okay, so here it is. Uh, it's called. Oh, here. Do you want to do this one? 
hold it up this way, that way. Um, it's called The Psychology of the Masses, Why You Believe What You Believe and Do What You Do by Noah Halberg, H-A-L-B-E-R-G. Um, and actually, on this point, I'll, I'll make sure that we add it to um, our, our Usuli bookshop. So let me just give a, a quick plug for that. Um, the professor was talking about how I had given him uh, a bibliography of all the books that have come out um, on Islam and related um, areas or subject areas. Um, and alhamdulillah that he went through this very long list and selected the books that he specifically recommended. Um, and we put them all on the Usuli bookshop. So if you are looking for, you know, high quality books that have been personally selected by the professor, they're there. So, and just to say that when he went through this resource, he actually had the first pass was just to identify which books were of, of scholarly quality. Um, and then secondarily, I sent him back and said, okay, that's fine that they're of scholarly value, like they meet that standard, but how many do you actually recommend? So we made the active decision that instead of putting everything that was of scholarly value on the bookshop, we only put the things that the professor specifically recommended. So um, that's there's a there's like over 400 titles there. So there's plenty um, to to find. And and then as I've said, we Usuli gets a little bit of of you know a share of whatever you buy, but not just from our bookshop, but actually if you go to bookshop.org through the Usuli site, and you go anywhere on bookshop.org, which has you know a gazillion titles, anything that you buy. Um, we'll, we'll get a, a little uh, commission from that. So, um, it, when I initially go went through that that list, I and, and I was like marking everything of scholarly value. It's it's all the things that I I had read, and even if I disagreed with it, but it was a scholarly respectable argument, even if I didn't like it, I I was marking. And then Grace said no. We we want to know what you would actually recommend. So what you actually want people to read. So anyway, so that's I think that's what you ended up. Yeah. Yeah. You know. The the you know the, there are a lot of you'd be surprised how many. Uh, how much scholarship there is about Islam and English. I mean, you, there, there is so much. Uh, the problem with a lot of these works from a practical point of view is that the the books are so expensive because publishers on Islamic topics sell very few copies and as a result the the they print very limited number of copies of the best works i mean from a scholarly perspective and they primarily sell to libraries, and then that's it. Um, and then electronically, a lot of these books then vanish. You know, which is interesting. But yeah. All right, next question. Um, many young Muslims in today's Western world argue that the essence of faith is honesty, gratitude, and kindness. And they have a problem with their Muslim parents' emphasis on issues of dress and restrictions on gender relations. 
just more of a comment than a, a question. Well, yeah, I mean, the point about gender relations, I mean, here again, we go back to, to the orientation of, of raising children. The point is that to live a principled, committed life. The reason that there were restrictions on gender relations in the first place was to try to guard against the tendency of human beings to misuse sexuality, to indulge in relationships that ultimately are not intended to build a family has no purpose other than self-gratification, a form of indulgence and egoism. It teaches the soul selfishness and it teaches the soul to take other human beings as items of consumption, as items for your enjoyment. That's not the way you're supposed to deal with human beings. It's not, they're, they're, they're not there to gratify. They're human beings. They, they're, they, they, and, and in all interactions, we are supposed to affirm in each other that your heart, mind, and soul, and intellect, and if the object becomes that we just are physically together and then we split up, that entire dynamic becomes a serious challenge. Um, you're not in nurturing relationships. You are in consuming relationships. And there is a world of difference. So the, the, the initial safeguards, the logic of the safeguards, you know, in legal terms, the operative terms, is to further a certain type of dynamic, a certain type of... Now, of course, that has become... Um, grossly misapplied in that you pursue the restrictions for the sake of restrictions regardless of what the logic what the philosophy what the, the purpose of uh, of it so in fact the restrictions could teach you instead of dignity and respect towards the other gender if they actually teach you exactly the opposite to disrespect the other gender, to, to think of that gender as there for your exploitation, for, for achieving purely materialistic objects. So, you know, again, I... I revisiting the way we talk to our children about 
relations to focus on respect and dignity and humanity, to focus on the right of people that come together respectfully and dignity to negotiate their own nest of peace and tranquility and for society to recognize their right to an autonomy in negotiating this relationship is very important because if society also says, no, this is the way you have to do it and no other way is permissible, well, that leads to its own social ills, people. That, that leads to serious problems as well. It, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that these azwaj are second and lakum, that they are a, a source of the, the very foundation is to build households of tranquility. That's a very different orientation. You know, you, you, there are so many households where you just have the, the semblance of a family, but none of tranquility, no peace. So really, you don't have a family. It, it is meaning, I mean, again, I, I, I see how misguided we are when I see what goes on on Muslim dating sites. I mean, these are our youth. And you go through... I, I wasn't looking for someone to marry. I was just <laughs> I was doing research. Um, so you know, you go through one after another, after another, after another, just every single one, and 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 there is just not not nothing remotely Islamic, men or women. It just and I think you say, okay, who who raised these people? Who's teaching them? It's, yeah, I, I don't know. And even all the, 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 I can't tell you how many, even in the Islamic Center of Southern California, which was supposed to be the most enlightened, of course, they turned out to be as ignorant and, and, and dark as, as so many others, even more so. But, um, you know, I would sit in, in, in youth group classes and I would hear the most horrendous things being told to... I mean, whole discourses about sex and sexuality, the issue of dignity and respect and, humi and, and, tra and tranquility in God wouldn't come up once. So, so what's the point? Um, and, and, you know, eventually... I was asked initially in the old, old days, long time ago, uh, to speak to youth group in the Islamic Center, uh, Southern California, and then eventually they, they just stopped inviting me because I, I would tell them, your parents don't know what's best for you, but dignity is critical. You have to respect your parents. You have to listen to what they say in due consideration. In other words, give it serious weight. But ultimately... You have to learn to navigate your own course. And the guiding point, the, 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 what guides you is there are certain rules for respect and dignity. And respect is more important than love, in my view. Um, 
because there are a lot of love that is very disrespectful and very destructive. And love doesn't excuse the lack of dignity. People thrive when they feel respected and dignified. And that's true in marriages, that's true in families, that's true even if a child goes astray, if you teach this child self-respect, in due time they will come back. But if they don't learn self-respect, they're lost. Okay, I'm going to assert moderator's privilege with my, my question. Go for it. Um, I also want to be a little bit careful about how I ask this because it has to do with our political system. But anyway, I wanted to first highlight um, if people have not had a chance yet to watch the khutbah from yesterday, it was really incredible. Um, and again, uh, another um, stunning, um, what's the word, indictment of just how our world is set up um, to really favor the wealthy. And I think when you listen to um, where Muslims stand in relation to the world. In one way, it was really difficult to hear the khutbah because in, a, in, a, in an hour's time, um, you know, the sheikh really summed up where we are as Muslims. And it's not a pretty picture in any way, shape, or form. And it would be very easy to just feel really defeated um, because all the people in power, including the Muslim leadership, you know, they, they're not interested in issues like Jerusalem and Palestine and, you know, Muslims in China in concentration camps. Um, but I, so I wanted to um, ask you to share with everyone what you told me last night when I was telling you about, you know, how you feel, how it's easy to hear that and feel defeated, but that we can't give up hope. That was point number one. And then number two is the other issue that came up, um, at least for me, on social media, which was very interesting um, that has to do with Muslims that are in the Biden campaign. You know, so as a nonprofit, we can't talk about, you know, things that encourage you to vote one way or another. That's not the issue. The issue here, though, is trying to come at it um, from what we talked about today, which is standing on principle as opposed to pragmatism. And, you know, navigating, I mean, first of all, the disappointment of having so-called Muslim organizations that supposedly stand for Muslim issues, but completely leave out issues of Palestine and, you know, Israel and, um, you know, and the obvious things that we should care about that you talk about in in your in your khutbahs. Um, and I guess my question has to do with, you know, navigating the disappointment of seeing these types of Islamic organizations, pretty much forget about God and choose pragmatism, like we have to stand together as Muslims and not um, criticize Muslims that have a place of power at the table, um, even if their positions are counter to what we should care about on principle. And, you know, how can we as individuals navigate that and what should we do? I mean, I, I, the, the, the second issue first, um, I mean, let, let me, I'll tell you that you want to know how we, how we ended up with Saudi leaders that 
would betray Palestinians the way that they've betrayed them. I mean, keep in mind that Saudi has imprisoned all the Palestinian activists that even, who lived in Saudi for 30 years, even those who collected donations for Palestinian families. They've put, they've put them in prison. How we ended up with, 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 with the type of thinking that would overlook the transgressions of Israeli settlers and the stealing of Palestinian lands and the destruction of mosques, because Israel destroyed a lot of mosques and also turned some mosques into, um, you know, bars and, you know. Um, But no, the type of thinking that also led us to Egyptians, the Egyptian government, destroying over a thousand mosques. Um, The type of thinking that made the Emiratis betray Palestinians the way they've done, and the Bahrainis now, and so on. Well, in my experience, in, 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 in the life that I've led, it all started precisely with the type of thinking that says, in order to gain a position of power on the table, let's drop an issue. And let me just spell this out concretely. When I came to the United States in 1982, I would meet a lot of the Emirati and Kuwaiti and Saudi and Bahraini students that are now in positions of power in their countries. And back then, they had the right type of feelings in the sense that they sympathized with Palestinians. They felt strongly at Jerusalem, but the way that they were all raised, and this, by the way, also applies to Egyptians, but the way that they were all raised is let's be pragmatists. So let's just not talk to Pal- about Palestine so that we can do these other things that help us become strong and help us develop, and then we'll be able to do a lot of good. And lo and behold, when I met, and, and, I, and, and by the way, for instance, I'll tell you something that I didn't say in the khutbah. When I was... At Princeton, I was teaching a couple of courses at Princeton. And I went through an, 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 uh, an, an event or an incident that just stayed with me. I had a, a student um, from the Emirat, I believe he was Emirati or Saudi, I don't remember. Anyway. I had a student in my class who was either Emirati and or Saudi, Saudi. He was from the royal family. And he was flunking my course. And so I was going to give him the grade he deserves. Next thing I know, I'm being called by the chair of the department, Avram Yudovich. And I'm told not to flunk, not to flunk the student the student, 
And I was surprised that Avram Yudovich was going out of his way to not just help this guy, but to give this guy special treatment. So I started noticing, and what I soon discovered is a lot of the people from Saudi and Kuwait and the Emirates and Bahrain at an institution like Princeton, but also the same thing I've experienced at Yale, are given special treatment. And I initially thought that they're given special treatment because of money, but then I realized that no. They're given special treatment because Avram Yudovich was an ideologue. He cared passionately about Israel. And he was creating the generation that you see doing what they're doing now. All of these people, all these diplomats, were trained here in the U.S. and in Britain. And they were all, their, their intellects were shaped and their intellects were shaped on pragmatic grounds. Avram Yudovich never told any of the, his Gulfi students or Egyptian students, because there was an Egyptian guy that I knew as well, stop caring about Palestine or stop caring about Jerusalem. What they were told is be practical. You want to help the Palestinians? Be practical. Give priority to pragmatism. This is the effect. This is the outcome, people. Because you, as a human being, you can't keep... If you pretend to be something long enough, you become it. You know, you can't play the role of a prostitute without becoming a prostitute. I'm sorry to say this. If you play the role of a prostitute, eventually you are fully a prostitute, regardless of how much you tell yourself I'm not. So, you know, now, uh, before this, by the way, I've known Muslims, again, I, I'll, I'll be very even blunt about it. What the heck? From the Islamic Center of Southern California. Uh, In order to sit on chairs of power, we have to play ball and talk about... The... So now, so the next thing I know is that in order to get a silly award, you have to meet a list of demands dictated by Zionist organizations condemning Palestinian this, condemning Palestinian that, condemning this organization, condemning this, condemning... and. You want to be nice boys and girls, so you do it, but the next generation doesn't have your psychology. The next generation doesn't know that you did all of this to just have a share in the power. The next generation takes you at your word and actually believes that these issues didn't matter to you. So the next generation doesn't care about Jerusalem anymore. They don't even know why you cared about Jerusalem. They don't even know why their parents cared about Jerusalem once upon a time. 
what's the big deal? Aqsa Mosque is just another mosque. Well, isn't it true that the, when the Prophet died, the Aqsa Mosque was not under Muslim control? Well, you know, but isn't it just one of the companions who extended Muslim control to the Aqsa Mosque? Well, and on and on and on. That is the problem. With so, in order to get Biden to like us, we have to drop Palestine. Okay, so Biden likes you. And let's say Biden gets elected. Is Biden going to help you with Palestine at that point? Or is it that everyone that comes after Biden will say, well, in the same way you drop Palestine for Biden, you're going to drop Palestine for us. And before you know it, you're without principles. And do you really think that now that they saw that you can forgo your principles on Palestine, they're going to help you with Muslims in China? Or they're going to help you with, with the Rohingyas? They don't respect you. People respect people with principles. They don't respect you. It's like these Muslims who voted for Trump because they thought he's going to make all the difference with Syria. Did Trump make all the difference with Syria? And I remember, I used to argue with them. He's not going to help the Syrians because he doesn't care about Muslims. He fundamentally thinks Muslims are animals. He's not going to help. You think he's going to bring freedom to Syria? No, no, no. He's, you know, you vote for him because he's going to make all... Or now the Muslims who think, oh, Trump is strong on China. Really? Trump has diluted everything Congress passed to attempt to do something on China. Look at that recent Hollywood Disney movie, Mulan, filmed in the, where the Holocaust is taking place, thanking the, the government that is responsible for the Holocaust in that province. Has Disney suffered any economic penalties? Not under the Trump administration. Because Trump has watered down the legislation that Disney can go film there, can work with the government responsible for Holocaust, and not worry about any consequences under American law. Because the way the law is phrased, the problem is that Muslims who just spew off stuff, haven't even bothered read the law. How can you sit there pontificate about China and even some of them write articles and you haven't even read the law? You haven't even read the executive decisions that were, and, or how, the way that Trump modified the law. So give me a break. I mean, Muslims have to become far more serious about things if they want to make a difference. And if they want to really serve Islam. As to the other point, I, oh, oh, that, that point about hope. 
Yeah, Greece basically was telling me, well, you know, you always keep saying that there's always hope and that you don't despair. And so, you know, after listening to the khutbah, and, and I, um, other than my iman in Allah, because you can't despair if you have iman. I mean, because ultimately, it's it's up to Allah. It's it's really in Allah's hands. If Allah wants, and by the way, there is a surah, surah al-Rum, that eventually, inshallah, we'll talk about, that, that addresses the same exact point. But other than that, you know, history, history flips on a dime. You think that reality is reality, and reality is very stable, and the way if you read history and if you study history, you're surprised how quickly everything changes. Literally, it within one year, nations and civilizations that have been dominant for centuries lose everything. And nations that have been oppressed for centuries. So... The lesson you learn from this is what is most important is to keep the principles alive. So when the time for change comes, people can be guided by something. Because if you compromise the principles, if, for instance, we stop talking about Jerusalem, if the day comes where Muslims can actually do something about Jerusalem, they won't do it because the principle was lost. That was perfect, alhamdulillah. Thank you. <laughs> and I think on that last, that's a good place to end on that note of hope and faith. And we now are just shy of our six hour mark.